There is no shadow within you. There is no darkness within you. You are pure truth, light, goodness, justice, and holiness. And because of that, Lord, um, you call us, you beckon your children to come to you and, and to love you and to trust you. So I pray that's what we would do today. We thank you for this time, Lord. We look to you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be finally getting into chapter 3 of Romans this morning. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. On the heels of what it is that we had learned last week regarding what Paul would, had, had addressed specifically to Jews with. And these questions then that we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 are a direct overflow of what it is that Paul said in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. So there, Paul makes this statement regarding the reality of who a true child of God is, who is a true Jew. The true Jew is one that's had a circumcised heart by the work of the Spirit in their lives. That's who the true Jew is. That's who the true offspring of God is. And so you can imagine for the Jew in that, in that time, they're going, well, wait, what does that mean for me as a Jew that's been circumcised, that's been under this Mosaic law and all of this history and stuff that we find in the Old Testament? Does that mean that just because God is fulfilling his promise um, differently than we expected, that he's completely like done with the Jews forever now? And Paul will address that in the in the negative, saying, no, it's not as if he's completely cast off all of Israel. It's just that things are fulfill, being fulfilled in a way that they never foresaw. Um, and it makes me think about just that principle in general. You know, how do you respond when God works in your, in your life or he's fulfilling the plans that he has for you to work in your life, to make you like Christ, to prepare you for glory in a way that you didn't foresee. And in many ways in which you would prefer he would do it a different way. I think a large part of the Christian life, at least for me, has been learning that lesson over and over and over again. God is, and one of the things though that's really helpful and encouraging and gives me a, a tremendous amount of peace and comfort when God chooses to do something in a way that I didn't foresee him doing or a way that I would prefer him not to do is what it is that we're going to see in the text today and that God, let, me, let God be true. God is, God is true and pure and holy and righteous and good and like infinitely wise. I am so happy. I am so happy and it provides for me a tremendous amount of like rest and peace knowing that God is infinitely wise infinitely good, infinitely powerful. I mean, this is what it, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, this is what we mean. That God is free. He's the only completely free being there is. And yet, he's com in his freedom, he is completely wise and good and just and holy. I mean, there are, there is reliability in God. That's good. I'm glad that he is true that helps me hold on to him, to cling to Christ in the midst of hardship and difficulty and uncertainty. And I would encourage you to, to draw near to him in that same way. Let God be true as we see him working and unfolding his plan of redemption in your life like we see him doing in Scripture, even when he does things that we didn't foresee 
and we would prefer for him not to do. It's this lesson that's being taught in Romans 3 today. Jews never foresaw God making uncircumcised Gentiles partakers in his covenant promises. And that's the reason for these questions in Romans 3. They're starting to put together what it is that Paul is saying as the words of chapter 2, 25 through 29 are sinking in. It's beginning this swirling of thoughts about what God is doing and about who God is. God's actions and what he does are always intimately tied with him and his character. I think you would probably find this to be true in your own life. God does something that you didn't foresee, that you don't want. Our first thoughts are, maybe I need to rethink who God is. I mean, his character and his works, they go hand in hand with one another. This is the reason why we, we struggle with, is God really good? Because what I'm feeling right now is not feel good. Is God really wise? Because if it were up to me, I wouldn't be doing it like this. Is God really loving? Because this doesn't feel like love. And we have to remember that um, we, can never, we, can never, I, we can never define who God is based upon our perceptions and based upon what it is that we think he's doing or who we want him to be. All we're do, if we do that, all we're doing is we're fashioning God into our own image, into what we want him to be. God needs to be free to be who he is and true to who he is as he describes himself and so graciously and wonderfully reveals himself in the entirety of his word. And this is why the scripture becomes such a wonderful presence and a tool for us. Because God is, God, you know, God is God regardless of what, what I think or what I want him to be. He, he just is him. The fact that he's given us a book that tells us what he is like is a tremendous gift of grace to us. For us to be able to know things with certainty. So that in those moments where I'm like, I didn't see that coming. I don't like what's going on. I can go back to the word and I can feed upon it and remind myself of what is good and true about God as he has so graciously and wonderfully revealed it to us in the word. Do you see the scripture that way? Do you come to it as, as the book that when you open it, um, Augustine has this mental picture that his mom was a believer as throughout all of his life, and he has this mental picture of every time his mom would <clears throat> be sitting down reading the word, there's this light that's beaming off of it that she is looking upon and gazing at. And I think that's such a wonderful picture of what the scripture is. It is illuminating, it is revealing, it is defining, it is telling us the way that things are, who God is, who we are, what's gone wrong, what God is doing about it. It is, it is revealing divine truth to us, and we are but to take it in, to drink it in, to embrace it, and to submit and yield to that which we see in the scriptures as well as we can. With Even in that, we need his help. So Paul is addressing this in some questions that flow out of what it is that God does when we don't expect it or even what it is he does when we wouldn't desire for him to do it that way. 
So let's read Romans chapter 3. Well, I'm going to actually start in chapter 2, verse 25, because this, this thought is moving forward, and then we'll read through chapter 3, verse 8. Beginning in 2.25, for circumcision it <clears throat> is indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision, has, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so last week we talked about what is the life that God commands and praises look like. It's the life that has, has, a, has a circumcised heart by the spirit. That then le- looks like trusting in God and obeying God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so you'll notice that there are a few questions in here that Paul doesn't directly answer especially the last one. He just makes a statement as to like, your questioning only further reveals the, your warped and sinful thinking. But as we work our way through here, we want to see the ways that God is true, the way that we can trust God to be true and that he shows himself to be true. Just to know that Paul doesn't give a full treatment of the issue here. Um, it's actually expanded on upon in um, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 which we'll eventually get to. But here, the issue is God's character. If God isn't doing what we thought he was going to do, how he was going to do it, is God still trustworthy? What does it say about his character? Is God changing things because he's fulfilling his covenant promises in a way that we never foresaw? No, God isn't changing things. It's just what we're working with at certain periods of time is veiled from us. And when we get to the New Testament in the person of Christ, we see the doors blown wide open and the work of redemption is made clear and full as to what it was that was shown in types and shadows throughout the whole Old Testament. All of it comes to fruition and all of it comes to clarity in the person and the ministry of Christ. You can almost hear the gears turning of a Jew that's hearing what Paul is saying. So what you're saying is that my, my ethnicity doesn't count at all for my salvation. That's correct. You're saying that my circumcision doesn't count as anything unto my salvation. That is correct. And not only that, but you're saying that the uncircumcised Gentiles are now included in the covenant promises because the work of the Spirit has done something within their heart. That is also correct. 
And so this, again, this would have been unthinkable for a Jew to, to go back then and to go, essentially to go, okay, now read back through the Old Testament, all those covenant promises. I want you now to apply those to Gentiles, to anybody, Jew, Gentile, anybody who has gone to, undergone a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. All of those promises are for who the true Jew is. And so we want to look at first a couple things that, um, this morning. And the first one is that we need to let God be true in his ways. Let God be true in his ways. We see that in verses 1 through 3. What then advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Was it all for nothing? Do we have any advantage at all? Um, Cranfield in his commentary says, The question raised is nothing less than a question of the credibility of God. You're calling God's credibility into, into question. So do we have any advantage? Well, Paul would say yes, very much so, but then look down at verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No. See, there's a difference between having an advantage and being better off. They have an advantage. The Jews have an advantage, but they were no better off. The advantage, he says, well, much in every way. There's actually a ton of advantage and privileges that Israel had. First, chiefly, what he says, much in every way, meaning chiefly, first of all, the, 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 the advantage you had was actually the biggest advantage anybody could have. Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I mean, they had divine revelation. It, the question would be similar to this. What advantage does, a ch does your child have being raised in a Christian home? Much in every way. What advantage do you have in making sure that the church that you go to and you're regularly attending and plugged into and that you call home has in your life? Much in every way. We all come from a variety of church backgrounds. And I think uh, we are where we are, obviously, by God's providence. Some of us have come from backgrounds where we, were go, where we would say, being at that church was spiritually disadvantageous for me. Parents, what's the advantage that your children have being raised in a Christian home? They know at least what the scripture says. I, I have no control on whether or not JC, Micah, Abigail, and Asher grow up to be Christians and love the Lord. I mean, JC's grown, she's 24, and by God's grace has made a profession of faith and has been baptized. I have no control over these things, but I guarantee they were put in an advantage of being raised in a Christian home where they know what God's word says. They know that dad's trying to do what we're learning about in Sunday school of being a godly husband and a godly father, though I fail in many ways. And then how do you respond when you fail with humility and seeking forgiveness? They know that mom's trying to be a godly mom and a godly wife. They're gonna know what godly children should do and what they should how they should act, they, they, they have a ton of advantage. They are exposed to divine truth. What is this book that you hold in your hand, that, you, that you're scrolling through? What do, you, what do you hold here? Divinely inspired words. This is no ordinary book. This is extraordinary. 
in the church that you're at that teaches the scripture, the, 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 the family that you're raised in or you're attempting to raise your kids in, all of this puts you as an, at an advantage, hopefully because you have divine truth given to you, taught to you, revealed to you. So there's, there's advantage much in every way. To begin with, they have, most importantly, the oracles of God. They've been entrusted with. They're to be entrustees. They're stewards of what it is that God has given to them. They didn't make up the book. They didn't write it. None of this has been written by man's own design. Men were moved along by the Spirit of God, as Second Peter tells us. And Second Timothy And so we're called to be stewards, to be good and faithful and trustees of the oracles of God. Divine revelation, that which cannot be known unless God reveals it. That's what you have in the word. Think about the advantage that the Jews had. Not only did they have natural law and revelation, which every single human being has, that was clear from Romans 1, but on top of that, they had further revelation and definition of who God is. Things that he revealed to them that he didn't reveal to anybody else by his divine scriptures that he gave to them. He spoke with Moses. He wrote down with his finger on the tablets. He, he then gave to them what they needed to know in order to operate as a society that would honor him and be set apart from the rest of the world. Like He's giving them a tremendous amount of divine information that is for their good. In the same way the scripture functions in that way for us tremendous amount of good it tells us most importantly how man can be reconciled to god like it it, it testifies to us through and through about the ministry of the lord jesus christ salvation the the, the reality of sin the, the blessed reality of the savior and the son coming and not just him coming but him accomplishing we know what it is that is required for man to be saved because it's been written down and it's and all of those events death burial resurrection ascension all those things have happened we're looking back on all those things with certainty based upon the love of god expressed to us in the son and the spirit testifies to us of these realities as we read in second timothy three sixteen, we have that which is breathed out by god profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and so did they. But what if some Jews, he says in verse 3, were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some were bad stewards? Not just bad, but sinful stewards. Uh, Charles Hodge, in his commentary, again, quotes an early first century Jewish writer and says, this about Israel. They suppose that to them universally who are of the seed of Abraham, no matter how sinful and disobedient to God they may be, the eternal kingdom shall be given. Why? What could possibly make someone think that it doesn't matter a bit of how you live? You can live as sinfully and wickedly as you want. Just as long as you got that circumcision, you're good. That was their mentality. Paul is breaking all of this down. By him talking about circumcision, he is going for the very, he's shaking the foundation 
of the house. You undo a foundation of the house, and I don't care what you do to the walls and the roof, everything is coming down eventually if you pull that foundation out from underneath it. That's exactly what he's going for here. Well, but what if some Jews were faithless? Will that nullify? Will that render God's uh, will and what it is that he's doing useless, inoperable? And the question is, does man's faithfulness ever determine God's faithfulness? God is faithful. One thing that we know, well, there's lots of things that we know. One of the things that we should know about God is that he is faithful. Just because, again, just because he is carrying out his plan of redemption in, in, in Gentiles who have a work of the Spirit of God in their life, who have their hearts circumcised, are now count, uh, counted as being true Jews. And as God is fulfilling that, those covenant promises in a particular way that they didn't foresee. Does that mean then that Israel's faithlessness means that God is not faithful to his plan? No, he is fulfilling his plan. He's just fulfilling it in a way that they hadn't foreseen. It doesn't nullify God's will. It doesn't render him inoperative. And again, so this is where we see God's, God's ways being questioned. Does the faithfulness, does the unfaithfulness of the Jews and his word render God unfaithful? Is God's faithless, faithfulness ever limited by man's faithfulness? And the answer is No. Only God can take everything that has been made for its divinely intended purpose, Proverbs 16.4, and work it into conformity with his perfect will, Ephesians 1.11. God is the only one that can take all things that are made for their divinely intended purpose, which oftentimes is veiled from us, and work it into conformity with his perfect will, fulfilling what he plans for it to to be and to do. So let's let God be true in all his ways. Secondly, let's let God be true in his character. We see this in verse 4. Let's let God be true in his character. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. The answer to the question in verse 3, we have a divine answer for in verse 4. If some were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And he quotes Psalm 51, 4. And, and so the issue that's being addressed in verse 4 is now God's character and man's character are being contrasted with one another. If there's a problem in how we see God doing things and fulfilling his promises, the problem is certainly not with God. Let God be true in his ways. Let God be true in his character. When it talks about God being true, we're talking about the very nature of who he is. He, he's pure light. He's pure essence. He is pure truth. True is the only way that God ever is. He's never false. He cannot lie. Titus 1 tells us that. 
There's no darkness in him. There's no shifting. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't come upon a situation and go, mm, what's the best thing to do here? Well, I think I'll roll the dice and do this. Or, well, I, I, I've looked down the corridor of time, and I've seen that this is what is best, so I'm going to move that way. No, that is not sovereignty. That is not God's providence. God is involved in ordaining all things to come to pass if they do come to pass. It's by his providence, his ordination. God is faithful to do all that he plans to do because he's true. He, he, everything that he does is true. He is truth. When Jesus came to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, again, it's another, it's another um, reference to his deity. God is true and he is true. We see this all over in scripture. We see it um, reflected in what Sam read for us this morning in Job chapter 9. We see it again in um, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6, 7, and 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There is, no, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. I mean, God is communicating to us over and over again through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, his, his individuality. His uniqueness, his truthfulness, his trueness, as contrasted to, as what we see here, every man. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. And this is quoted from Psalm 116.11, all mankind are liars. This is the very nature of mankind. We're deceptive. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we covet, we murder. This is, this is just, this, it's who we are. It's what we do because of the fall. And what's being contrasted here, if God is carrying out his plan of redemption in a way that we never foresaw or in a way that we don't like, does it mean God is faithless? No, God is not faithless, God is true. All mankind are liars. It's very, the way that he actually writes it out is clear to show that he's speaking of every single individual person. All, every individual person that has ever existed in humanity or would ever exist in humanity is a liar. It reminds me of one of the indictments Jesus made against the Jews. John 8, 44. Again, this is, you know, right in the heart of them talking about who their true father is and who Jesus is. And Jesus says this to the Jews, you are of the father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When Jesus here identifies Satan himself as being the father of lies and a liar from the beginning. So when he says that all mankind are liars, he is grouping all mankind into be 
in league or cahoots with Satan in our fallen nature. God is the only one. He is, he is unique. He is set apart. He is true and contrasted to him. All mankind are liars. And then he quotes Psalm 51.4 to prove it. And that's, if you're familiar with Psalm 51, that is David's psalm of repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. And if you read through that psalm, it's a beautiful and a wonderful expression of two things. David's acknowledging his sinfulness and his fault, and he's acknowledging God's righteousness and holiness. And however God chooses to judge David for his sin, it is right. God always gets it right. I mean, that is a wonderfully encouraging truth to know that about him. I mean, it can be scary, too, because there's hidden evils within the heart that we would prefer for him to, like, look over and pass over with us. Don't get that one right. But to know that one day all wrongs will be made right. He sees everything. He is the only one that actually sees everything for what it truly is. In action and in motive, thought, he's the only one that sees it with perfect clarity and he takes it all into consideration. He is absolutely true. David understood that and knew that. We should be people that know that, understand that. And let God be true in his character and his ways and all that he does. And that leads into our third point. Let God be true in his judgments. Let God be true in his ways. All that comes to pass, comes to pass by his ordination and he governs it and it all serves his divine purpose. Let God be true in his character because he, he does nothing with, with mixed motives. There is no guile. There is no deception. There is no lying. There is no uh, in God. Let him be true in his ways. Let him be true in his character. And that helps us to confess, yes, let's let God be true in his judgments. Because he, 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 he won't get it wrong. He always judges correctly. And again, we see this here in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. We see that the Jews trying to impugn God's character and scrutinize his ways, which reveals the heart of the issue. Mankind would only dare to question God in such a way if he sees himself as greater than God. The only way that you charge God with doing wrong is if you think that your way is better, which is really just a heart expression of, I think I know better than you, God. I should be the one running the show. That's an expression of, I should be in authority, and God should be doing what I want him to do. And that's what is revealed through these questions here. Paul had said that Jews had a tremendous advantage. Well, one of the advantages the Jews had was that they knew of God's sovereignty. It was, it's replete all throughout the Old Testament. They knew of God's sovereignty. If something comes to pass, it has been ordained by God. And their line of thinking is, since our unfaithfulness has come to pass, 
and has been ordained by God, which it has been, which Paul would make clear in Romans 11. So then the questions begin. If we have been unrighteous, is it because God has ordained that we would be unrighteous and see the law in this way? Though it does not absolve them of personal responsibility as well, which we see here. This, this great tension between the providence and the sovereignty and the ordination of God in all things as they come to pass, as they have always existed in the mind of God from eternity past, and yet the, the responsibility of mankind to know what God's will is, as we've again been reminded of in Sunday school, and to live in obedience according to what we know. Uh, no, no Christian would ever, should ever, condone any expression of sin and just say, oh, well, it happened because it was the will of God. God ordained it, it happened. No big deal. No, we, we are always called to take responsibility for what we do, confess it as sin like we saw David do, but yet know that within the eternal, incomprehensible mind of God that he brings all of these things to carry out his perfectly ordained will. I can't wrap my mind around that, but I know it's true because I see it true in Scripture. And one of the things that the Jews knew is that God was sovereign. They'd seen his sovereign hand at work, didn't they? How did they come out of Egypt? By the sovereign work of God. How did, how did they get across the Red Sea? Sovereign work of God. How did they get into the promised land, defeating all of the, the, the enemies and the people in the land that were already there and planted? The sovereign work of God. I mean, they knew it. And so then the questions begin to roll. Well, what if our un, it, it, but if in our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that God uses all of these things, even our unfaithfulness for his righteous and divine purposes, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to, to inflict wrath on us? Well, the good news is that we have a divinely revealed answer in verse 6. No way. By no means. God is above scrutiny. God is true. And that's how we know that God will judge, be able to judge the world. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? If God is not trustworthy, if God is not always good, if he's not always pure, if he's not always divine, how can we trust that he'll get it right in the judgment? The scriptures tell us, right, chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality. How do I know, God, that you're not going to be partial? I want to know in the judgment, are you going to take my side or are you going to take my wife's side? How do I know you're going to be impartial? Because he's true. He's pure truth. He does not show partiality. He always gets it right. Let's let God be true in all of his judgments. Even if our unfaithfulness shows and magnifies his faithfulness, which it does, God always gets it right. By no means. To, to, to scrutinize God. You know, I was thinking about this, what the word scrutiny means. It means to take something, what somebody has done or said, and like you bring it in front of you for careful analysis. You put it under the microscope. You're analyzing what is said. Was this right? Was this wrong? Because eventually you're going to render some sort of judgment or verdict based upon that analysis. Like mankind does that with God. Can you believe that? I've done it. You've probably done it. You bring God's actions and his ways and his character before you. Hmm. 
God, okay, well, why did you do that? And what does this mean here? I don't think I like that. Let's change that. Can we do this differently here? I mean, it's the height of man's rebellion and pride to think that we can scrutinize God's ways. He is inscrutable. We have no right to, to, to examine or cross-examine anything that he does or says, as if to cast a, a, a verdict or a judgment upon it. Let's let God be true in all of his judgments, because he is true. The second question that he poses then is even worse than the first, if you can imagine. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? If God uses my sin, if God uses my evil for his own glory, which he does, sin away. What does it matter? And even more so, why am I even held accountable? Why Why is it just for God to judge me for wrongdoing and sin when all things come about by his ordination and if he uses it for his own glory anyways? And Paul's answer is, your condemnation is just. He doesn't even answer, like, the question theologically, doctrinally. I mean, we could. There's lots of other places in Scripture where we could. But the answer is this. You're, you're so far out of bounds, man. Like, your condemnation is just. This line of reasoning and questioning is, is only continuing to reveal how warped and twisted your, your sinfulness has really grabbed a hold of you. Like I said, believers never, ever condone sinful behavior, even though it does eventually will bring God glory. Instead, really, the issue is that I should rejoice that my stupidity can result in the glory of God. I don't have to be undone even by my sinfulness. This is the kind of the weight that I feel as we, as I um, Think upon my, my foolishness, my sinfulness. You, spo- you, you, you sin, you're convicted, you're responding like David, you're doing the things that you should be doing. And the thing that I usually take rest in and wrestle with at the same time is, God, please don't waste this. Like, help me to learn from it. I don't want to do that again. Please, please sanctify my sinful choices. Please, by your grace, still use it for your glory. Now, the biblical truth that God will doesn't always alleviate the weight of the conviction that I feel over the sin that I've committed. And these are two things that I think are good for the believer to hold in balance as when we transgress against the Lord and we feel the weight of the conviction for it, that is good, but then we still rest and are assured in the work of Christ for us on our behalf and God's ability and willingness to use that even still for his glory. That God would be magnified and glorified in all things. So a couple encouragements and exhortations for us. As we are considering letting God be true in his ways, his character, and his judgments. 
God doesn't always do what we want him to do or how we think he will do it. But really, trust is the issue. This is, we're going to sing um, a song after our communion time, which we've sung many times before. Um, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And I think this communicates well, this idea of having this perception of what, who God is and what he will do and what then he actually does and the struggle that we face in that. I'll read you just a few verses. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's great, right? Like, pray that, do it. That's a wonderful prayer. And then this is the response as John Newton penned this, this song in 1779. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, it's he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord rep replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Like this, you pray a prayer and you're saying, God, make me more like you to trust in you and to see your grace. You watch and, you watch and see what he does and how he, do, how he does it and you let him be true and how he carries it out in your life. But also know this, the truth is that he has set his love upon you. This is the reason why he answers this prayer. He is planning for you to be with him for all of eternity. And he is preparing you for an eternity of glory with him. And that's what he is doing when he does things that you don't expect, when he, do, when he does things that you don't desire for him to do. And you warm your heart to the truth that he is always at work in your life for your good, for his glory, and preparing you to be with him, to enjoy him forever. And so you learn to enjoy him now in the midst of the difficulties. I guarantee you, through the, the, the times of hard, hard, hardship, darkness, despair, those are the times where you will cling to Christ the closest. And he will become more, he will become warmer and more beautiful and more good and kind and gracious than you have ever known him to be before. He will break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in him. This is the time where we are going to partake of communion together. And this is, a, this is an expression of worship. If you're here visiting us today and you do know Christ by faith and by faith alone and you have been adopted in his family, you've had this inward circumcision of the heart take place, then we invite for you to partake of this communion time with us. This is a time of worship. This is a time of rejoicing in what it is that he has done, right? We partake of the elements, the bread that represents his body, the juice that represents his blood, because it directs us and our thinking towards the work of Christ on our behalf. And we rejoice in that. We worship in that. 
Also in line with that, it's a, it's a wonderful time for examination and confession. To ask and to pray, Lord, um, help me to grow in every grace. And to rest and trust that he is true in, in carrying out his will. So the elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those and return back to your seat for a few moments of prayer, and then we will partake of communion together here shortly.